The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you want to open to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4 is where we'll begin. And we're going to get through chapter 7 this morning, hopefully. We're going to start reading, not at the beginning, beginning of chapter 4, because we actually ended with kind of verse 1a uh, last week when we were together, that the word of Samuel and the word of the Lord were kind of uh, together, seen as together, because the Lord had given him as a prophet. Samuel was a prophet to the land and was speaking to the people uh, for God as God spoke to him. That's kind of where uh, we, we left off. Today, we're going to see a fulfillment, though, of what had been promised in last week's uh, chapters that we looked at. You remember it was pronounced two times. Two times it was pronounced that the family of Eli had something coming because of how they disrespected the Lord and serving the Lord as priests. But we didn't see the culmination of that. We didn't see how that would come about, but we will see that here this morning. So let's begin reading in chapter 4. Second part there, verse one. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines uh, encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. We can stop there just for a second to say this is unexpected, is it not? We expect the ark of the Lord, the covenant to come in, the shouting, the Philistines are scared. Well, there's reasons for them to be scared because they're about to be destroyed. But no, in fact, we see the exact opposite take place here. Verse 12, then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. 
And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. We'll, we'll stop there to talk about this for a second. So we see there in verses 2 through 11 that Israel is going to battle with the Philistines. The Philistines overtake them. So then Israel comes up with a plan. And their plan is, if we get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out here, surely God will honor that and surely we will be able to win this battle. We will able to be able to win this war. And so this is what they do. They go and they call upon uh, Phineas and Hophni to bring the ark. They come into the camp. Everybody gets excited. But instead of salvation, what we see happening is destruction. How the people thought salvation would come because the ark of the covenant is here. Instead, we see God use this as part of his plan to bring about what he had already promised in the chapters before. Because not only is there a great slaughter amongst Israel, but the ark is captured. And not only is the ark captured, but the priests are killed as well. So Hophni and Phinehas are now dead, which is actually something God had already said, like we talked about. Because of the things that they were doing, how they were wicked as priests, they were continually sinning, and everybody in the land knew this. We see God's judgment now rain down on them, and their death has occurred. And you can imagine, they, I'm sure that Phinehas and Hophni walked into camp thinking very high and mighty of themselves and what they were doing. But then they never walked out of that camp because they were destroyed. What they thought was going to save Israel was actually used very differently. Then one person runs away. We see they, he, this person gets away from the war, gets away from the battle, runs all the way to Eli and to town there, tells everybody what is taking place. Eli hears of what is happening. He goes to Eli then and says, this is what's happened. Your, Israel's been slaughtered, your boys are dead, and the ark of God has been took. Eli falls out of his chair. He dies as well from how he fell. And then we have also this story then that continues in the family of Eli, that Phineas' wife was pregnant, 
because of all this is happening, it, it induces labor. Now she, she gives birth to this son, but while giving birth, it says afterwards that she, she dies. But before she dies, she, she, gives this, she gives this boy a name and it's the name of Ichabod. And it's not a good name because it means glory has departed. That the glory has departed. I think a little bit though that she didn't understand and that she didn't think about. She thought that the glory had departed because the ark was gone when in fact, if we, if we look, the glory had departed a while ago. It wasn't just because the ark of God had gone, but no, the people were wicked in the land. The, the priests were wicked in the land. They were sinning and they were disobeying God. And so really this could have been said a, a while ago that the glory had departed this land because they were, they were not honoring the Lord as they were supposed to do with their part of the covenant. They were not doing this. I was reading in a, a commentary about this and this guy brought up a, a good point about this name Ichabod and saying, you see, Israel didn't even realize, it seems, as that the glory of God had departed. They thought that even though that their priests were wicked, all this stuff, they were still God's chosen people and they still had the Ark of the Covenant. And as long as this was going, God was still going to be on their side and nothing could touch them and nothing could happen to them. But sadly, they didn't realize that that glory was already gone, that Ichabod already would describe them and their land. And this commentator actually compared it to many churches today who would walk into their sanctuary and maybe see verses and see things about how we worship God and how we love God. But really what could be a, a little subtitle under it, they should put in their brick, is Ichabod. We act like we worship God. We act like we love God here. But in fact, the glory of the Lord departed here a long time ago because we really don't keep him center. We really are more focused on ourselves. We're really more focused on feeling good when we get out of church than we are in making sure that we worship God how we should as a church family. I think that's a danger that we do need to think about even in our own lives as individuals, not just in a church-wide, but making sure that Ichabod is not a name that should be bestowed upon us, that the, the glory of the Lord has left us, but know that we are following the Lord faithfully and serving him and loving him how we are supposed to do and not letting that creep in because it can creep in so easily into our lives. Well, in chapters five through chapter six, I want to encourage you, especially if you're uh, uh, parents here and you have kids still in the home, to read, to read chapter five and six together because it's a, it's a fascinating story and I'm going to do my best to, to summarize it because I don't want to uh, read all these, all these chapters together. But in chapter five, verse one through five, we see the ark of the Lord enter into the Philistines' territory and they decide, and this is very common, that they had conquered the Hebrew God and so they were going to take the Hebrew God, which to them was the ark, and they were going to place it in their temple and so they placed it in their temple next to their God. Dagon. Well, they wake up the next morning and Dagon is on his face before the ark of the Lord. And so they pick their God back up, set him back up how he is supposed to be, and they go about doing their business. The next morning they come in and not only is Dagon on the ground, but his hands and his feet and his head are also chopped off before the ark of the Lord. Well, this causes a little bit of panic in the land. But on top of that, God isn't done there with just that. Throughout the land of the Philistines, the Lord sends tumors and rats wherever 
the Ark of the Covenant is at in the land. And so the Philistines actually start transferring it to town to town. But every town that the Ark of the Lord goes into, rats and tumors infest their body. And so they get to the point to where they say, enough is enough. Let's get rid of this thing. And so they decide to return the Ark back to Israel, but they do it in a very peculiar way because they want to know if this is actually a God doing these things or if it is actually just by circumstance. And so they take, what they decide to do is they decide to take two cows who are still nursing. They pull them from their calves that they are nursing. They put a card on them and they put the Ark of the Covenant on there. And they say, if these cows head to Israel, to this town, then It is the Hebrew God who did this. But if they go back to their calves, if they go any other way, then this this was just a peculiar thing that happened and we don't have to worry about it too much anymore. Now, think about that. They are really putting the favor in circumstantial evidence more so than in God's favor because those cows are gonna go back to their calves. They're nursing them. That is what they do. It's what they know to do. But instead, we see they shoot straight for Israel. They shoot straight for that town of Beth Shemesh. That is where they head and that is where they go. And so they then know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was the God of Israel that did this. Well, as you get to chapter six in verse 19, I want us to to read there because it's interesting what happens when it gets to Israel. So it gets to Beth Shemesh. There's The Philistines have put golden tumors on this. They've put golden rats on this, all these things. It's an interesting story. Like I said, your kids would like it if you read it. But then in verse 19, it tells us, then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab and on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, And it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So one of the things that we see happening that's interesting here is the ark enters back into Israel, and when it gets to the town that it's supposed to get to, the people there did not treat the ark of the covenant how they were supposed to treat it. They looked in it, they did something. And it says that the Lord struck them. Now there's questions about that number that we said there, uh, 50,070. Most people say it was probably just 70 men. But regardless, it was a lot of men. And the purpose and the point of it is that, again, Israel disrespected it. They disrespected it. Most of these people probably had never seen it before. They probably heard of it. They knew the importance of it. And they just wanted to touch it. They just wanted to look in it. And when they did, judgment came upon them because they were desecrating a holy thing of of the Lord that we see here. And so, no doubt, the people of the land did what you and I would do. Hey, let's get this out of here. It's killing all of our people. Let's, let's call the other town over and say, hey, wouldn't you like the Ark of the Covenant to be in your town? Good tourist possibilities, maybe. I don't know. But how about you take it? 
And so they do. And so the ark moves again to the town of Kirjath-Jerim. And there they consecrate someone, Eleazar, to watch over the ark of the Lord and to treat it how it should. But then it says that it was there for 20 years, and for 20 years Israel lamented. And you might say, well, why did they lament? You know, the Ark of the Covenant was back. It's because they were still wayward. They still, as a nation, were not following God. They were still not faithful to the things of God. And so they still would continue to lament their position before the Lord. Well, let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 3. It says, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome by Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel, were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar." To the Lord. So we see there at the end of chapter 7 that again Israel is under dire stress because of what is happening. The Philistines are coming upon them and they don't know what to do. They know that they can be destroyed. They really have nowhere to go except for to the Lord. And so they go to Samuel because they know that he is the prophet of the Lord and they ask of Samuel, Can you speak to the Lord on our behalf? Can you cry out to the Lord and continue to cry out to him? And we see Samuel does that. Samuel cries out to the Lord. He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And we see scripture tell us that the Lord answered him. 
And while the Philistines are coming to attack them, it says that the Lord confuses them with a loud thunder, so much so that Israel then can overtake them and overtake them so much so that they get all their land back. So it was a great victory for Israel. And then chapter 7 continues on there in verse 12. You see Samuel sets up, it says he names it an Ebenezer. He sets a stone up to remember what the Lord had done and to remember how the Lord had helped us. Samuel sets that up for, for everybody to remember and to know so that they can be reminded of what the Lord had done here in this place. It wasn't what Israel had done. It's what, it's what God had done. And then it goes on to talk about Samuel's ministry, you could say, and how Samuel ends up being the very last judge of Israel. And while Samuel was the judge, there was relative peace in the land. It's told to us. So as we look at these chapters, I think there's a lot that we can pull out of it. And I just want to pull three things out of it this morning. Again, I don't think it's everything that could be pulled out of it. We could talk more about an Ebenezer and remembering what God has done for us and our, our need for that, even as a church, to remember where God has brought us from and how the good things that he has done. But first I want us to look at the, at the sin that Israel committed there at the very beginning and, I, and talk about how I think that we often do this as well. But we have to remember, God is not a lucky charm. This is what Israel thought of God. It's obvious with the Ark of the Covenant. That it was like a rabbit's foot. That, you know what, let's... Why did we lose? Well, let's talk about it. Well, I washed my socks, and so that's the problem. I, I shouldn't have washed my socks. God would have helped us to win this battle if I wouldn't have done that, or I cut my hair, or whatever it may be. And they said, you know what? We need the ark of the Lord here. Just bring it in, and, and God will see that, and he'll, he'll honor that, because this, this is our lucky charm. This is, this is what works for us. And so they, they treated God in this way. And we see that this simply didn't work. It just simply failed. Now, if you're like me, you can look at that and say, well, they were dumb. That doesn't make any sense. But when I really sit and think about it, I start to think of ways that we do this today in our life. The only time we pray is when we need something. That's it. We don't, we don't pray and just praise God we only pray for things we need. Why? Because he's who I go to when I need something. He's my lucky charm to make it happen. And if I don't pray, then he's not going to do it. I have to do this. And so all of a sudden, prayer becomes this sort of good luck charm. When I played basketball in high school, I would sit holding hands, not sit, we'd stand, and we would hold hands as a basketball team and recite a prayer of which I knew, I don't think any of them in that group other than me really had a relationship with the Lord. I would think, why are we doing this? Why did we do it? Because the teams before us did it. It's what you do. It became a lucky charm for us as a group. And that's not what the Lord looks like. Or maybe you'll see people wear crosses on their, their charm. Or some people now have gotten bolder and they get a tattoo. And that becomes sort of a lucky charm to them. See who I am. And this, God, God will honor this because I put this on my skin forever because I always have this thing dangling from my neck. See, Lord, you, you are number one in my life, even though we go off and live as if he doesn't really exist. But, but I have my lucky charm on, which is God. Or maybe another way that we do this is we walk into this room on Sunday mornings and we think, 
This is my lucky charm. Because I came to worship this week, God will honor me. God will give me a blessed week or God will see that. And if my week is going bad, the way I will appeal to him is I will appeal to him by saying, I was at church this week. Don't, don't you remember? I was there. I even sang out loud. I think the person in front of me heard me. And there, there's a pew in between us. We have this attitude as if worship is some good luck thing. That if we can just conjure up God, he will pass this luck on to us. The commentary that I've been reading from, or one of them, which is available out there, Pastor Spencer's selling it, Dale Ralph Davis, he said this way, he said, whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful, well then, you know the ark of God has been captured again. And I really feel like that's where a lot of us go. Pastor Tim, at the end of your sermon, give me my application to know how, how this is useful to me today. How I can go out and do something more because that's what God is, right? He, he's a useful tool for me to feel peace in my life or to feel joy in my life or to be successful. That's what God is. Hmm. The ark has been stolen. The glory has departed because now God is just a relic. Now God is just some good luck thing. A wish and a prayer, as we might say. You see, what God was more concerned with, and Israel needed to realize this, is God was more concerned about the spiritual state of Israel, more so than he was about their temporal state, about, the, about what was going on around them. He knew the sin in their heart, and he needed them to see this. He needed, to, he needed them to see their position before him, before they were realizing their position before the Philistines. And for him, this is how it was going to be done. They were going to get conquered. And so God was very willing to let Israel fail in war, not in business, not in these other things. I'm talking about in war, your life on the line. God was willing to let Israel fail. Why? Because they needed to repent and they weren't there yet. And so God was going to make sure I am going to get you to the point to where you realize you need me way more than you need safety from these Philistines. You need me and you need to repent of your sin. And this is what Israel was not willing to do. We don't see that when the ark comes into the camp that they repent of their sin and fall on their face before a holy God. No, the ark was just gonna bring victory. But God wanted them to see again. No, sin in the camp needs to be taken extremely seriously because we see later when Samuel would confront them and say, you need to repent, we see they were worshiping foreign gods. They were worshiping idols. They were disrespecting the laws of God by mishandling the ark. All of these things were happening. All of these things were taking place. And what God was pointing them to in all of this was saying, repentance needs to happen. Now, repentance isn't a word that we enjoy. It's not a word that I enjoy. But it's a word that we are given in scripture and it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. And what Samuel does for Israel in, ch in chapter seven, verse three through six, is he lays out, he lays out repentance and what it looks like. So I wanna, I wanna share that with us. Number one, if you're going to repent, you have to be willing to hear what is wrong. 
You have to be willing to hear what is wrong. Now, I think in our day and age, this is where we get it wrong, and it's only step one. Because we're not, we're not willing to hear where we're wrong. As soon as we hear the opposite side, what do we say? You're wrong. We don't even necessarily listen, but it's, you're wrong. Why? You're on that side. We're not even, to, we're not even willing to open our ears and, and listen to take it in. But this is what Samuel would tell them. Hear what is wrong with you, Israel. But then second is this. You have to recognize then what is wrong in your life. So you hear the word of God preached, you read it. And so you've heard it. But now recognizing, oh shoot, that's me. Oh no, that is me. That, that lies within me. So can you imagine being Israel? <clears throat> hey, get rid of the false gods. Oh, I got one in my bedroom. I got one of those idols that I, it's in my bedroom and absolutely everybody is going to see me take that out of my bedroom and leave my house and get rid of that thing. That's embarrassing. But you have to recognize, whoa, this is wrong in my life. But then next Realize that God is right in this. Sometimes we try to fight him. Yeah, but, but God, I, I had to make that decision because of the situation I was in. I, you don't understand why I did that. It's because she did this to me and it forced me then to do this. God, the reason that I posted that was because he posted this about you and so I was gonna post this back and get back at him. God, actually, I was doing it for you. See, we, see, we got a good way with words. We, we got a good way with trying to, trying to trick God. But we have to understand, no, God is right in all his ways and in all he does. So then the next step, after we realize I'm wrong, realize God is right, is there needs to be confession of where we got it wrong, of being willing to confess our sins before God and to say, God, I am guilty of this. I am guilty of this sin and I am guilty of this sin and I am guilty of this sin or whatever it is. And to put that before God and say, God, I humbly come before you. You do what you need to do because I'm guilty. I'm absolutely guilty. And then the last part of repentance is then being willing to turn to God and, and live for him and to run from that sin, to get that sin out of your life See, but again, we're, we're really good at talking our way out of that. I know my phone keeps causing me to sin, but I can't get rid of my phone. Because my phone does so much good for me. Yeah, but it also does so much bad for me. And so we weigh that out. And we try to determine it. And we try to, we try to talk to God and we try to reason to God. And when we get into that category, then I, I don't think we're truly willing to repent. Or I, I say phone. There's all kinds of things. Whatever it is in our life. But Samuel called for the people to repent. And I think the same goes for us. We need to look at our life and to realize, am I using God for what I can use him for? Or am I worshiping God for who he is? Is he just a useful tool for me? Or is he Lord of my life? And as we get down to that, 
I think for all of us in here, we can see parts of our life where we say, you know what, I treat him more like a tool. And when we see those areas of our life, then we need to repent. We need to repent before God and turn from that. And it's such a battle. It's such a fight in our life. Listen, God will forgive us of our sin, no doubt. But that's kind of the easy part for us. Then we've got to turn and honor him in that and do our best to fight that sin through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. The second thing, so we see that God's not a lucky charm. The second thing is this. We see very clearly in this passage that God can fight his own battles. Here we see this with God. He fights without the need of anyone. When he's in that temple, when the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple and the hillbilly in me wants to say, Dagon, I don't think that's how you say it, but, but Dagon, I think maybe is how you say it, I don't know, falls down. God did that. Falls down, head cut off, hands cut off, feet cut off. God doing that. The Philistines not knowing what to do. God strikes them with tumors. God, God strikes them with rats. They take it from town to town and over and over and over again. God is doing this. There's not an Israelite anywhere around to be seen. There's nobody fighting for God except for God himself. God is the one fighting this battle. God makes sure that the ark gets back to Israel without the help of anybody in Israel. In fact, when Israel finally got it, they messed up and a bunch of them had to die because of the judgment that came upon them. Then later, God confuses the whole Philistine army all on his own that allows then Israel to win this battle. See, for us, we know that this is true. God has fought our battle for us and he has won it. In Romans chapter 9, Verse 31 through 39, Paul would say it this way. He would say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God fought our main war for us through Christ. It's nothing you did. It's nothing I did. I didn't hold Jesus up on the cross. I didn't give him any extra strength to get through it. I never whispered in Christ's ear, hey, make this decision. Hey, Maybe you should tell Peter this. I've never had the opportunity to go before God and say, God, what about this plan? Never have I been a part of it and never have you. But yet God conquered sin for you. He fought the battle for you. We can be amazed looking at this story. Man, it's amazing that God would make that statue fall. That's amazing that he would cut off the head of that statue. That's amazing that he would send these to, he would do all this stuff so the ark would go back, all that. Listen, that stuff pales into comparison 
for the battle that God fought for you through Christ, to conquer your sin, to cut off the head of the snake, or as scripture would put it, to crush it under his heel, to destroy that enemy that you have in your life. That's what he has done for us as Christians who's been saved by his grace. He fought that battle for us in our place. In John chapter 10, verse seven through 10, it says this, says, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Because of the work that Christ has done, we are promised this abundant life. Jesus warns here. He says, there's going to be thieves and robbers who try to come in other ways. And they're going to try to convince you of this, that there's other ways to an abundant life. But Jesus warns, he says, listen, I am the only way to an abundant life. That's it. Through believing in me, through trusting in me, through letting me work in your life. That is the only way that you can have an abundant life. And God did that work for us. Now listen, we, we can't forget that it's a privilege for us as Christians to be able to serve God. It, it's an honor that the Lord lets us serve him. And we must never get in our mind. And I think, I, you know, sometimes I feel this way. I gotta, I gotta admit that. To where we start to think, God, you're pretty lucky that you've got me. We think, you know, God, Look how good I look today. Just shaved a little bit, got a haircut, got shoes on, got my suit on. God, you're so blessed that I'm on your team. I'm so smart. I come up with things just so quick, just off, just off the top of my head. You're welcome. Now, we laugh at that, and we should laugh at that. But we act that way. We act that way in statements like this. You know, if only I would have witnessed to that person one more time, they'd be in heaven today, but I didn't get the opportunity. <laughs> you think that was your battle? You think that was your battle to do that? Now, again, listen, we must be faithful to God and to serve him. And part of that, he says, go and make disciples. That means sharing the gospel with people. That means all these things. But I have to realize this. I cannot save a soul. You cannot save a soul. I cannot fight your battles for you. I cannot do that. I can get on my knees and I can pray for you. I can talk to you. I can share the gospel with you. I can tell you all the truths of God's word. But the fact of the matter is, I cannot overcome your sin. And you can't overcome anybody's sin either. Mom and dad, you cannot save your child. Grandma and grandpa, you cannot save your grandson or your granddaughter. It doesn't work that way. God does that work. And for many of us in this room, we have seen God do that work over and over and over and over again, despite our failures, despite our frustrations. If I were to pull you this morning as parents and say, how many of you can raise your hand and you could say, our, my child is a Christian, I know that. 
And then I would say, keep your hand raised if it's because you did such a good job. You guys would all put your hands down. At least you should, because you didn't do a good job. All right? It's not because of that. You can look at your life and say, I remember this failure. I remember this failure. Looking back, I'm ashamed of this. Yet somehow in the midst of all this, God worked and saved mom, saved my kid, saved whatever, saved me. It's because God does that work. And in his great mercy, he allows us to be a part of his kingdom. In his great mercy here, he allowed Israel to go and conquer the Philistines after the loud noise. He didn't need them. He could have struck them all dead, but no, he lets them go and do that work because he's a good God. And so no matter what our task is, no matter what God has placed us to do here on this earth, listen, it is a worthwhile task to serve the Lord in that capacity. If you're a business owner, worthwhile task. If you're a nurse, a teacher, police officer, a doctor, whatever it may be, it is a worthwhile task to be a Christian serving the Lord in that capacity. Within these church walls, whatever you might do, however you might serve. Maybe you're not serving. You need to. But however you serve, usher, people who clean, pastors, sound people, people who come and help us fix the building, all these things, it is a worthwhile task for the Lord and we should praise him every day for allowing us to be a part of his work because listen, he does not need us. If God wanted to, he could fix that thing up there that bugs me so bad. I pray every week it'd be fixed by him when I come in. He hasn't done it yet. But it's a worthwhile task to see that thing fixed. But God doesn't need us in those things. And lastly, we see in this passage that there's really, there's only one true God. There might be lots of little G gods out there, but there's only one big G God. There's only one true God. And the Philistines failed to realize this. They felt that they had conquered God. They felt they conquered the God of Israel. And now they could just add him into the pantheon of gods that they served and that they worshiped. And their mistake caused big problems for their God, did it not? And also for themselves. We cannot forget that there is only one God. He is the one over all things, it tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 6. The Bible tells us that he is perfectly holy and that he is just, that he is without blemish, without spot or without stain. The Bible tells us about this true God, that he is merciful, that he is kind, that he is slow to anger and wrath. Bible also tells us that this God is perfectly just in everything he says and in everything he does. This is the God that this morning we came here to worship together. The same God that cut the head of Dagon is the same God that we sing about this morning. The same God that struck the loud noise to cause confusion within the Philistines camp and allowed Israel to go in and to conquer them. It's the same God that we come here to worship together today. He's perfectly holy. He's not like us. God doesn't have to come to us and repent of anything. He never has to come to us and say, I know I told you to do this, but I found out I was wrong. Let's do it this way instead. We don't get that from our God because he's perfect in all things. We read earlier Psalm 99. 
And verse five really sticks out to me. It says, exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. To think that a holy God would even allow me to worship him at all, but to to worship him at his, his footstool. Now, some of you might say that and say, why would I have to go to his footstool? <laughs> because his holiness, we can't get any closer. Just being able to go to his footstool is amazing. And then we get down to that very last verse of Psalm 99. It says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. See, the, the reason that God of the Philistines couldn't stand before the Ark of the Covenant is because it wasn't holy. And so it tried to bow before the Lord the first night. That wasn't good enough. And so the next night when it tried to bow before the Lord, the wrath of God cut off its head because it wasn't a holy God like him. It doesn't deserve to be in the place of God. Brothers and sisters, Christians, you have to understand, we do not find ourselves worthy to walk into this room and to approach the throne room of God at all. We are not worthy to do that. You should not have the ability to do that. Every single one of us should die when we cross into those doors. That's what we deserve. But because Christ has gone before us and fought our battle, because he died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, the curtain that separated God and man, it said, was torn from top to bottom. Why? Because now we have the privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies to where God would sit and to worship him. But it's only because of the blood of Christ. That's the only reason we get to do that. Some of you this morning, you came in here, and if you're honest, the attitude you came in here this morning to worship God was not very holy. You could honestly probably say that, Pastor, that's me as one who should be judged very unworthy to walk into this room. You didn't take it serious. You didn't think it through. You never really thought about the songs that you were singing and the words that it said. You never really contemplated God and who he is and in his holiness. You just came to church because that's what you do. That's something worthy of repentance for all of us. Same for me. Look back on my week, look back on my struggles and try to reflect that to the holiness of God and you think, I don't even want to go. I don't want to go this morning because I'm unworthy. I shouldn't be in that place. I shouldn't get to sing to him. I shouldn't get to worship him. I shouldn't get to even hear his word talked about. But then God reminds me, yeah, but Tim, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And because of him, you can go. Because of him, you should go. Because of him, sing to me. Because of him, worship me. Honor me. Live your life for me. Because of him and what he has done, Christ has fought your battle and has made it available for you to worship the one true holy God. That's good news this morning. I hope you take it as good news. I hope you understand that. I hope that you've trusted in Christ as your savior. I hope that you've believed in him to forgive you of your sins. If you haven't, I, I hope you will. I, I hope the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You're seeing that. And I hope that you will go before God in faith 
and trust in Jesus. You can do that even this morning. It's not magic or anything like that. Just voice that to the Lord. But for those of us here this morning who understand that, who've been justified by his grace, let's praise him this morning. We're going to sing. I want to pray, and then we'll sing that song together, and then I'll give direction after that, okay? God, during this time as we sing, God, we want to praise you. We want to worship you. We want to understand that all that we have is, is Jesus. And I think that's the song we're singing. All I have is Christ. God, he's the reason that we can worship you. God, he's the reason that a sinner like me could come and preach your word. God, how, how daunting that seems, honestly, for me so often. How unworthy I feel. I don't want to do it oftentimes. But God, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And because of him, I'm white as snow. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. And so, God, I thank you for that. And, God, I know there's many in this room who can say the same thing. So, God, as we sing this song now, I pray that we would sing it to you and worship. God, I pray that we would respond to your word how we should. Maybe it means coming here and praying. That's fine if people want to do that, praying in their seats where they are. But, God, during this time, you alone deserve glory. It should be glorified. So help us to do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.